You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Hello and welcome to Security Unlocked, a new podcast from Microsoft where we unlock insights from the latest in news and research from across Microsoft's security engineering and operations teams. I'm Nick Fillingham. And I'm Natalia Gadilla. In each episode, we'll discuss the latest stories from Microsoft security, deep dive into the newest threat intel, research, and data science. And profile some of the fascinating people working on artificial intelligence in Microsoft security. And now, let's unlock the pod. Hello, listeners. Hello, Natalia. Welcome to episode 37 of Security Unlocked. On today's podcast, we are joined by Jonathan Barr-Orr, who is the author of a blog from June 30th, 2021, in which Jonathan talks about discovering some firmware vulnerabilities in networking hardware and how he went about, first of all, discovering those vulnerabilities and then working with the vendor to get them resolved. It is a fascinating conversation because it really starts in one place, which is Jonathan basically helping test the the efficacy and accuracy of a machine learning model. And it ends in Jonathan sort of working hand in hand with this network manufacturing company to get some you know, pretty gnarly vulnerabilities addressed. Many of us have seen the recent stats on the rising number of firmware attacks or attacks via internet-facing systems. And as we all continue to live this hybrid remote work life, we recognize that our weakest link can be the home network infrastructure that companies now have to secure since the infrastructure extends well beyond the office now. Jonathan is super great at describing this really technical investigation, and he uses a ton of acronyms that I think would be worthwhile to cover off here before we dive into the substance of the episode. Yeah, Jonathan talks about TLS encryption. I think our audience is is pretty familiar with with that, Transport Layer Security, which is the successor to, to SSL. The other one that was used quite a bit was NVRAM, and that's short for non-volatile random access memory, which is memory that saves its stored data regardless of whether the, the power is on or off. Any other acronyms you got on your list there? He does also reference QEMU, which is a open source tool that performs hardware virtualization, and he uses that in the course of his investigation. So you'll get to hear a real live use case for that solution. I do have to pause and just give serious kudos to Jonathan because in the episode, as he's describing these vulnerabilities and how they occurred, he defines side channel attacks to us. And he does this by setting up a riddle and describing the analogy that supports that riddle using a classroom with 40 children trying to ace an exam. Yep. We'll leave it there. That's the tease. It's a fantastic analogy. I think you'll enjoy this episode. On with the pod. On with the pod. Welcome to the Security Unlocked podcast, Jonathan Barr. Oh, Jonathan, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Jonathan, if you could give us a, a quick introduction to yourself. What do you do at Microsoft? What's your job description? But what's your, your day-to-day look like? So I'm a security researcher in Microsoft. I've been in Microsoft for the last five years, give or take. And I've been focusing on, on a mix between uh, red teaming and blue teaming, also known as purple teaming, mostly on, on um, the Microsoft Defender world. So 
both antivirus and post-breach solutions. Currently, I'm, I'm doing the research architecture for the cross-platform solution for uh, Microsoft Defender for Endpoint. Got it. So on today's episode, uh, we're going to talk about a, a blog post that you authored on June the 30th around some uh, vulnerabilities that were found in some uh, network hardware. Before we jump into that blog post, though, I'd love to sort of understand a little bit about your background. We're going to talk about firmware. We're going to talk about sort of unpacking firmware. We're going to talk about sort of low-level decryption. Can you tell us about your, your path to Microsoft and your role and, and as it pertains to what we're going to talk about in this blog post? So as I said, in the last uh, five years, I've been Microsoft and I was a part of a team that looked at all the security techniques that were available both for pre-breach and post-breach and was tasked with both simulating them, finding new techniques and detecting these or even preventing these. So if you look, for instance, at what uh, MITRE attack metrics, how it looks today, then we kind of created that even before the MITRE attack metrics was existed. It was created internally. And then initially, I was responsible for the lateral movement aspect of the attack, moved towards uh, looking at kernel exploits, everything that's related to exploitation, really moved towards tamper protection because one of the things that we really want to have is is a product that can't be easily tampered with, right? Especially because attackers nowadays, at least in Windows, heavily rely on running as administrator. So it's it's quite a challenge. Later, I was I joined a team that does kind of a mix between attacks on the endpoint and attacks on on the cloud itself. So if you look at attacks today, you'll see, let's say, tools like Ruler, right? Which is an attack tool in which if, if someone uh, compromised your Outlook account online, they can basically breach your uh, endpoint, right? So everything everything now is, is, is basically a mishmash of, of attacks and you have to kind of uh, coordinate how the endpoint and the cloud work together. As a part of that effort, I was also tasked with kind of leading technically at least, the network detection and response effort that became basically the network device discovery solution that is uh, basically described in the blog post. As a part of that effort, I also looked at some firmware vulnerabilities because we know our customers uh, sometimes are not only they're vulnerable, but also they don't know that they're vulnerable. They don't know what's on their network. So that, that was kind of a huge effort. And I would say that 99% of my work there was really describing kind of the attacks themselves and how to fingerprint devices correctly. The 1% that is basically, you know, resulted in the blog post is basically looking more deeper into uh, what attackers could do with network equipment. Thank you, John. That's a great setup. So the blog post we're going to talk about today or the work we're going to talk about today is from this June 30th blog post. So you basically, uh, I'll paraphrase and I'll have you sort of correct my oversimplification, but you notice some uh, anomalies coming from a very specific uh, router made by a, another company. And 
basically went through the process of decrypting or extracting the firmware, looking into the firmware and finding, up to, I think it was three vulnerabilities. And then you sort of went through a, a disclosure process with the company and ultimately got that fixed. I think in, in today's conversation, I'd, I'd love sort of a, a sort of a chronological walkthrough of how this happened. How was my summary? Did I get that right? What, what's, what's the sort of TLDR for this blog post? You were absolutely correct. I don't need to correct you. Uh, that was 100% correct. So basically, basically what happened is, is we, with time, right, we started uh, getting our, our, our data from our customers. And we started realizing that we have an issue, right? Because there are known network equipment vulnerabilities that are very, sometimes might seem even, even very reliable for attackers, right? And we see, we, we actually see that attackers are moving away from modern operating systems because they're so hardened these days. In the past, you could have just exploited, you know, found, find like, um, you could have found basically like a memory corruption vulnerability and you'd get code execution. And these days you have so many technologies. The known ones are, of course, uh, non-execution, the NX bit or, or DP. That's how it's called on Windows and also ASLR that randomizes how mo- modules are laid out in memory. Of course, that's not bulletproof, but these days you have so many other technologies. CFG is one of them. There are, you know, sandboxes inside Windows and other operating systems as well. New uh, hardware vendors are implementing pointer authentication. So all these things make life really, really difficult for attackers to attack or modern operating systems, not just Windows, everything, right? Linux, Mac are, are really hard and well. And again, because because of that, attackers tend to move away from those things where network equipment and all of these things because they're easier to target and continue from there. So basically, the problem is that a lot of the uh, network traffic between these network equipment and the modern operating system or endpoints is encrypted. In this case, it was TLS encrypted. So one of the things that I started doing with our machine learning folks is basically to train a model that would say, this network connection is an anomaly, even though we can't really tell what's inside because we can't decrypt it, right? Both technically and, and also legally. And basically the idea was, okay, so let's say, I don't know, I'll I'll give you a scenario. I'm not an an IT person. I'm just working at some company. You know, at a certain point in time, let's say at at midnight, we see that my machine tries to log on into a router's management port, right? That's not something that should normally happen, right? I'm not an IT person. We're not supposed to do that. And then our solution is supposed to basically flag that and say, oh, this is an anomalous connection. So just based on time, the type of machine that I have, and, and so on. And so basically, we started uh, training these models, and they work pretty well. We simulated some attacks, known attacks on, on various webcams and routers and whatnot, and then basically started getting feedback from the field, from our customers. At a certain point, we found uh, one of these cases, and it was really weird. It was kind of almost like this uh, scenario that I just described. Basically, a non-IT person connecting to a router at, I, would, I wouldn't say midnight, but over the weekend at a very interesting hour when no one is supposed to be awake, hopefully. So basically, the, the problem now is, is, okay, we have an anomaly, 
but how do we prove that it's actually bad? And this is where I started uh, my research from, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. And and why did you decide to pursue an investigation on this particular uh, anomaly? To be completely uh, transparent, we wanted to know that our machine learning models work well, because up until this point, we just tested them synthetically, as in we trained them and we ran some attacks simulated some of them, but we didn't know exactly what would, how they would really work in the field. So imagine that you, you train your, your machine learning model and you test it and it, they look good. And now you dispatch them to the field to customers in a non-enforcing mode still, because we want to get feedback from the field before, before releasing it, you know, publicly. And then you get a hit, right? You get, you get an actual anomaly hit. And now you you basically want to, as a researcher, you want to understand what happens there, right? And and the only way, because I got I got the the network communication recorded, but because it's encrypted, I wasn't able to do anything. At this point, what I decided to do is basically try to prove to myself that it could have been such an attack or at least an attempt, right? It would be very hard for us to be honest to tell the difference between you know, an attacker trying to exploit something like what I found and just an attacker trying to scan the network and look for just, you know, even trying to brute force, let's say, the management port of the router. So we still don't know exactly what happened there, but we suspect it might have been one of these cases. And Jonathan, were you actively hunting or were you still in sort of model training, model verification mode? I think you mentioned this was this was customer Data. This was these were network equipment actually out in a customer in production running one of the Microsoft Defender for endpoint services. Is that right? It was a design partner. That's how they are called because it was before uh, the general availability of our product. And yes, I was actively hunting. We have uh, good machine learning folks that are far far better than me and more proficient in this these worlds. So all the credit goes to them. And basically, what I tried doing is to prove to our basically to our leadership and also to ourselves and to our uh, machine learning uh, team that their efforts, you know, actually bear some fruit. And then one thing that I would like to mention is the fact that a lot of these design partners, once we ran our solution, were really shocked to discover how many things there are in the network that they don't, they don't, didn't even know about. Starting from, you know, Raspberry Pis that employees just brought you know, j- just logged into their network, following with vulnerable web cameras that were just there, printers that were just unknown to these folks. And we're also, we also discovered a bunch of network configuration issues. For instance, we discovered some devices that just had open telnets, which basically means that if someone runs in the network, they can just run arbitrary code on, on, on these machines. So we started from there, right? And that router was also one of these things that were just really weird to see because basically it's, it's, it's mostly used as a, as, as a home router as far as I understand. But uh, nevertheless, we found it on a customer's network. So you mentioned there were a few surprises. What were the patterns? Were there a particular set of devices that were more commonly identified, like more Raspberry Pis versus routers that were 
previously unidentified to the customer and like how many new devices on average? I would say that they're case by case basis, right? It really depends mm-hmm. on the customer. For some customers, we found interesting, I think it was around 20 something Raspberry Pis that were just <laughs> like they didn't know of. The open telnet issues were found on a different customer. The vulnerable uh, web cameras were found on a very sensitive kind of uh, design partner. So it was really alarming to see, but uh, we didn't draw any any patterns. We did, however, try to improve our fingerprinting with time, right? So if initially we had uh, fingerprinting for just the most popular vendors, and with time we started getting a lot of uh, unknown classifications, so we had to improve with time. And this thing is, is not, you know, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. So basically, uh, we always get one of these like unknown devices, and then we have to fingerprint them one way or another. But I guess it's kind of a different story. I don't want to di- um, digress into a sort of a, a product pitch here, but but Jonathan, the the actual sort of feature or the product that this work that you, the, this machine learning that you talked about and the work that you're supporting, this is a part of Microsoft Defender for Endpoint. So it's the ability for the Microsoft Defender for Endpoint service to run a process, a service that can fingerprint all the devices on a network and then sort of return a view, a sort of a device discovery sort of uh, capability inside the product. Is is that correct? Yeah, that's right. And after the release of, of that feature the, known as uh, the network device discovery feature, we actually acquired two uh, companies that are very focused on on network equipment, and also IoT. Uh, these are, are uh, CyberX and uh, Refirm Labs. Both of these companies are very proficient at what they're doing. And currently what we're doing is really to get, get their knowledge absorbed into the product so we can actually do even better. But yes, this is a part of the suite. Awesome. So you saw that the model flagged an anomaly you thought I'm gonna I want to investigate this and you know see that the model's actually doing what it should. What was the n- next step? Did you just physically go and procure one of these network devices, or was it still unclear what the actual device was? Did you have to do some more investigation to find the? I mean, was the MAC address there? Could you re- look up the MAC address and work out what the the model number was, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, so basically uh, from the MAC address, there is an OUI that you can get. Like that's the three first octets of a MAC address and you can kind of uh, conclude who the manufacturer is. And then we actually asked, again, we asked permission from the uh, design partner to actually uh, work with them and try to identify the device. Once we identified the device, we still haven't purchased one of these devices because you know, we had to prove to ourselves that this is really an interesting case before purchasing a bunch of routers. But we did. One of the th- things that I started doing is to try to, with the design partner, try to actively fingerprint the firmware. And I was able to do that with not a lot of difficulties. Um, and then what I decided to do is just downloading the actual firmware from the vendor's website, which was and still is available and basically try to analyze it statically, as in without running it, without doing anything. And that's where I found, I think, the first vulnerability there. And after I found the first vulnerability, I I basically uh, pushed for us to acquire one of these devices, actually two, because we were afraid to break one of them, and basically try to find more interesting issues there. So we did. We ended up buying that. 
before buying that, one of the things that I did was to uh, emulate the firmware. And you can do that with tools like Wimu. That's the, the number one tool probably to do that. But you have to basically simulate some things that are, that are out of your control. In this router's case, it's basically the entire NVRAM. Uh, so you need to do a bunch of hacky stuff to actually emulate it and, and make it, make it happy so it runs uh, smoothly. So I was able to do it, but not, not for the entire router. And sometimes it crashed. And this is why we decided to actually buy one of these things. So just stepping back for a minute, can you walk us through what the three vulnerabilities you identified were and TLDR and how you got to identifying that particular vulnerability? Yeah. So as I mentioned, the anomalous network connection was to the router's management port. The router keeps a bunch of listening ports open, and one of them is a management utility over HTTP. Or in this case, it was HTTPS because it was TLS protected. And John, I'm going to jump in. Jonathan, yeah. so if, if anyone listening to the podcast has had experience either playing with routers or even the one at home, are we talking about the exact same thing where you know you set up your router for the first time and you go to 192.168.1.something and then a web page loads and you enter in like a default username and password and there are the settings for the router? Is that when you say management console, is that what you're referring to? Yeah, that's the one. Got it. And then... The three vulnerabilities were basically uh, an authentication bypass, where basically uh, you can, without knowing the username and password to the router, you can basically log in and do whatever you like. That was uh, vulnerability number one. Vulnerability number two was uh, another, I would call it probably not just authentication bypass, but a, a side channel attack on the username password verification so you can basically uh, with a very low number of well relatively low number of uh, attempts basically conclude what the username passwords are and third vulnerability is basically kind of a broken cryptography case where basically the vendor used a baked in password to encrypt something and then of course Encryption doesn't mean anything if, if an attacker knows the password. And the password, again, is, is embedded in the binary, which is somewhere buried in the firmware. So it's, it's more like obfuscation, really, than, than encryption. So that was the third, uh, third vulnerability, which is, I, I'd like to say, less severe than the other two. And you made a point of distinguishing authentication bypass from a side-channel attack can you tell us what's the definition of each of those? What differentiates those two types of vulnerabilities? Well, the authentication bypass is basically when, when in this case, the router, but generically any system that requires a username password, and you just, just somehow bypass and bypass that the requirement, basically making the system believe that you're authenticated. That's the authentication bypass. The side channel attack relies on, on in this case, time differences of uh, the system responding to an attempt, right, to a username password attempt, which basically allows an attacker to conclude the username and password. And uh, if you're coming from a cryptography background, this is something that is basically a cryptographic vulnerability. So... I loved reading your description of how you did the sort of secret retrieval and were able to, you know, ascertain the the username and password. Is there anything about that technique that 
I mean, so I'm not a security researcher. So this, to me, this is all new and very interesting. But the techniques that you went through to do this, was this all, you know, folks listening to the podcast that do this kind of work, pretty standard? Or did you have to sort of really, really think outside the box and sort of be creative here in, in your approach? I mean, there are certain things uh, that, that when you look statically at the binary and you start to reverse engineer it, you'd look for certain patterns and certain function invocations. In this case, actually, the that approach led me to both of these vulnerabilities, right? The authentication bypass and the side channel attack. Where I, in the authentication bypass, I found that the vendor was using the uh, notorious C function strstr. And in the side channel attack, the vendor uh, was using strcmp for string comparison. So when, when you get, you know, experience in, in exploitation, you kind of try to look for uh, all of these unsafe functions in a binary. And then what I was really looking for is basically a memory corruption issue, right? This is usually the case with these things. But I found basically this, these two issues are logical bugs, right? Specifically, the side channel attack, if I may actually uh, try to explain that to my cousin uh, with, with kind of a riddle. So what I told her is is that imagine that you're in high school, right? And your teacher is giving you basically a pop quiz, like to the entire class. It's only a pop quiz with 10 questions, okay? 10 questions uh, with multiple choice even. So four options for each question, right? So you have 10 questions with four options each. And the teacher basically announces to the entire class that if someone aces the test, then the entire class passes. Otherwise, everyone fail. Now. The teacher basically checks every test in front of the students and takes, let's say, a second to check each answer, right? And of course, the teacher want, just doesn't want to waste her time and doesn't want to check a paper that's not perfect. So the teacher basically stops at the first mistake, right? So let's say that you submitted your test with three uh, and, and the third answer is, is a mistake. So it'll take the teacher three seconds to basically say, oh, you fail. The problem is that we're all very bad students and no one actually knows the answer to any of the <laughs> questions, right? So how can you guys uh, really pass the test given the fact that there are just 40 students? That's the riddle. And the answer is basically the, the, the side channel attack. So of course, each answer has four options. So normally you would need over like a million attempts, right? So you need a million students to actually guess every combination. But what the students can do is to measure the time it takes for the teacher to check each each submission, right? So let's say the first student tries question one with option one checked, right? And then if it, the, teacher, the teacher takes more than one second to say fail, then everyone knows, everyone knows because everyone's present when the teacher checks. Everyone knows that the first answer is answer number one. If the teacher takes a second or less, let's say, then the second student can actually try answer number two for question number one, and so on and so forth, right? And then if you calculate it, you understand that for each answer besides the last answer, you need only three attempts to really conclude the right answer, right? So if all three first three uh, students fail, then the fourth answer is the one that, that's right. So basically, we need three times nine plus 10, which is uh, 37 attempts. So you even have three students extra. And this is how you solve the riddle. The riddle and, and 
this is exactly how the side channel works, right? You basically rely on the fact that they run SDRCMP or string compare, which is a lazy function, just like the teacher. It basically stops whenever there is a mismatch. So if we do an attempt and measure the time it takes for the router to respond bad username password, we can actually conclude whether we our first character, let's say, was correct or not. And if it was, then continuing to the next character and so on. So this is the how the side channel attack works. Tell me what you were like in high school, Jonathan. Were you? <laughs> did you pull together 37, 36 of your friends with stopwatches? And uh, I wish you... I had thirty-seven friends. <laughs> 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 I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> um, wow, there's some uh, unintended uh, uh, sort of therapy happening here in uh, in the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> now that you've gone through this process, you know what's the takeaway for customers here? Um, as we as we started to talk about earlier in the conversation today, routers, firmware. This is a new threat vector, or one that is increasingly being considered by threat actors. Do we have guidance to customers on um, what they should use, how they should use our products to help secure themselves? Yeah, generically, I would say that we see, again, we see a trend of attackers moving away from the endpoint. This connects well to what I said about the cloud, and it connects well to what I said I said about uh, network equipment. Basically, network equipment and, you know, IoT and what, what I call devices, basically. So IoT is just one branch of them, is significantly less secure than modern operating systems, sometimes because it has to due to performance, due to size limits. This world is just uh, very rich and much less secure than modern operating systems. So I would say that to customers that, first of all, be aware of what happens in your network. And one of the ways that you can do that is, is of course, with a network device discovery solution, such as the one that we're offering. Basically, all of the regular IT management is still relevant here. So for example, making sure that all of your solutions are patched, make sure that you get the latest firmware from vendors. And it's it's not a very easy thing to do in, in many cases, especially for all of these devices. A, because sometimes uh, customers are really not aware of what happens in their network and what what's connected to the network. And secondly, because sometimes it means actually manually upgrading firmware. So so this is not a very easy task, but it has to be done if you want to be secure. So unfortunately, it's, it's again, it's not a very easy thing to do, but it must be done. And so that's what's next for you. You'll be identifying ahead of time another investigation to kick off based on what you find? Well, when you say for me, it, it could really be interpre- interpreted as two different things. For that product and the product team, yes, we're, they're going to do that. And as I said, they're working hard now to to make sure that all of the knowledge from CyberX and Reform Labs is being absorbed, if you will, into the product to make us even even greater. For me personally, as I said, uh, I'm now working on, on, on cross-platform for the Defender for Endpoint, but I'm hoping to achieve uh, similar fits there if, if, you know, if, if I get lucky. <laughs> so if I may add, 
I'd like to thank not only the the cord- vulnerability coordination team, but also, of course, to Netgear that were very responsive and reactive and work closely with us to make sure that all customers are protected. Fantastic. Well, Jonathan Barwell, thank you so much for your time. Um, I really enjoyed reading your blog post. I'd love to learn more about your, uh, I was about to say exploits, but I think in this context, that's the wrong word. I'd love to learn <laughs> about your investigations in the future, um, looking for vulnerabilities in uh, in lots of different pieces of technology. We'd love to have, have you back on the Security Unlocked podcast at some point in the future. Sounds good. Waiting to find more things and come back to your <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Well, we had a great time unlocking insights into security from research to artificial intelligence. Keep an eye out for our next episode. And don't forget to tweet us at MSFT Security or email us at securityunlocked at Microsoft.com with topics you'd like to hear on a future episode. Until then, stay safe. Stay secure. This week on Uncovering Hidden Risks, we explore how you can use a cloud-native application protection platform to solve different challenges. Be sure to listen in and follow us at uncoveringhiddenrisks.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.